0: I am uh, so thankful to have the. It's thankful for God's grace and thankful for the privilege of living living life in community with the body of Christ and seeing little infants come into the world and mom Christian moms and dads. Um, Committing themselves to raise kids to be disciples of Christ and for us publicly sharing in that and then thinking about watching high school graduates um, completing a pretty major phase of their life, kind of starting out now to go forward in the world. And then thinking about birth, high school graduation. And then yesterday, gathering together as a community of faith to to give thanks for one who went on to eternity this week. And it's a picture of birth, transitions, and ultimately uh, going on to eternity to see our Lord. All of this is rooted in one who lived a sinless life who died on a cross for our sins and was raised from the dead. And our hope as parents, graduates, and even those who, as we gather together as a family, to celebrate those who've gone on to eternity, it's all rooted, our hope is all rooted in Christ. And it's a a blessing for us to do this together as family, community of faith. Several... Years ago, I received an unexpected phone call from a Christian brother, a man who was a former basketball player for the University of Louisville. He was a captain of the 1996 team, one of the best shooters as far as statistics and 3 pointer one of the best shooters that's ever played college basketball. And 1996, same year, by the way, that Mississippi State lost in the Final Four to Syracuse, Kentucky went on to win it all. I'm just trying to connect, you know, Mississippi, you know. (laughs) I'd prefer to talk about Michigan, but uh, we're, we're, you know, Mississippi, right? Mississippi State, Ole Miss, so. But this guy's name was Brian Kaiser, and over the years, Brian and I became good friends. He and his wife, at the time that he called me, had been married 30 years. They had six kids. A couple of their kids were grown, and they had... Uh, flown the nest, and then were living their life as adults. And he called the church office and asked if I was available, uh, that he, he wanted to talk. And this is what he said when I took the call. He said, Pastor Charlie, my wife and I are struggling, we're heartbroken, spiritually burdened for a few of our grown kids. And as I listened, my heart ached for him and his wife as they went on to describe that as adults, their kids were not living for Christ and were going through all kinds of struggles. And after describing what they were feeling as parents, this is what he said to me. The reason I called you is because I needed someone to talk with. Someone that I respect, who I knew would listen and give me good biblical counsel, and someone that I also know who has been through the parenting process of raising kids and were were intentional about establishing them in Christ. So you and your wife are the ones that came to mind. Now that was very dear to me and very humbling to hear, it was honored. But then this is what he asked. Pastor Charlie, are you aware of any place in the Bible where God promises Christian parents, any promises to Christian parents that if you raise your kids to know Christ, to hide his word in their hearts and to pray over them their entire lives, are there any promises in the Bible that they will grow up and embrace the gospel? how would you have answered that question? I want you to think for a moment. How would you have answered? If that person had called you and asked you that question, are there any promises in God's Word that guarantee us that if you do all the right things as Christian parents that those kids will grow up and embrace Christ? What would have been your response it's a good question, theologically, right? Biblically, it's a good question. Would you say, and I've said yes, God promises that, or would you say no, God does, make, does not make such a promise? What do you think my answer was? My answer was a gentle no, not exactly, I am aware of a principle found in the book of Proverbs, and by the way, the Proverbs are not promises. Those Proverbs are principles. One that came to mind was the principle in Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way he or she should go, and when they are old, they're not. And they will not depart from it. Sounds like a promise, but it's not a promise. It's a principle. And actually, scholars have struggled for years and years on the best way to translate that verse because it literally reads in the Hebrew, train up a child in his way, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. So it's a sound principle. Sound principle, they have to be trained. Kids need to be trained And the principle is they're likely to turn out the way that they've been taught. That's the principle. They're likely to do that. But that Proverbs is not a a promise. Great counsel, not a promise. However, in the conversation, I went on to have, to share some things with him that I believe strongly in the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God and the sovereignty of God and especially in his promises regarding prayer, all of which can be applied to raising our sons and our daughters and our grandsons and our granddaughters and working together as a church family to raise kids that are entrusted to us as a church family. In other words, I do believe in faith Faith-based parenting, which is one I want to share with you this morning. Faith-based parenting that you and I as a community of faith as well as individual parents and grandparents serving God, trusting in his sovereign goodness and faithfulness to honor his word in the lives of our families. And so if you have your Bible, I'd invite you to open it with me to Exodus chapter 2. I have never preached this text before, and and so I really uh, enjoyed some preparation time this week going back through, and so I want to share this text with you, and we'll read this in just a moment, but here's the reality. As these parents today, moms and dads and grandparents, publicly dedicate themselves to the Lord and consecrate these little ones to the Lord's service, the reality is the amount of time that it takes before these same little ones that were presented before us as a church family, the time that it takes for them to go from that to here they are graduating as as high school seniors, that time will pass in a flash. Amen? It goes by so quickly as we recognize these high school graduates today. I would dare say there are many of you sitting here this morning who can remember when these graduates were also going through what these parents with through and dedicating them to the Lord. Anyone remember that? And I don't know all of you have heard the same thing said to you by Other parents and other grandparents who have said to you, oh, oh, enjoy them being little. It'll be some of the best years of your life because they're going to grow up and be gone and it passes so quickly. And it's true, isn't it? Amen. And so with that in mind, I want to challenge all of you as parents, challenge you as grandparents, your primary role as grandparents, not to spoil them. Spoil them as you, as you will, but there's more to being a good grandparent than spoiling grandkids. So all of us as parents and grandparents and as a community of faith, I want to challenge you to seize the moment, to seize the days and the weeks and the months and the years, and do not waste time. If you're going to raise your children to embrace God's call upon their lives to be followers of Christ, then start where you are. Start today. You can't make up time, wasted time. You can't make up for it in the past, but you can, by God's grace, be determined to do things differently going forward. And so my encouragement to you is to press ahead. And with that, I invite you to read with me from Exodus chapter 2, starting with verse 1, as we consider faith, faith-based parenting. Verse 1, and a man of the house of Levi went and took as wife a daughter of Levi. So the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that He was a beautiful child. This kind of sounds like all mothers. When she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrishes for him, daubed it with asphalt and pitch. By the way, it's the same description that you find in the book of Genesis as Noah builds an ark. Not, not, a, not, It was just it was a basket. And it wasn't an ark, literally, but it's the same description. Dobbed it with asphalt and put, pitch, put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. And his sisters stood afar off to know what would be done to him. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and her maidens walked along the riverside, And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child. And behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Uh Aha. Verse 7, then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Moses' sister, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So she called his name Moses, saying, because I drew him out of the water. I invite you to pray with me. Heavenly Father, would you speak through your word, giving us spiritual ears to hear your voice. Bring forth a parental revival of change and new life among us. Change us, Lord. Move us out of our worldly patterns. Move us away from spiritual apathy and neglect and breathe into us new life. Bring dads and moms to a new posture of spiritual, willful determination and deep reliance upon the Holy Spirit and impart to them and through them the gospel and sound doctrine to their children, accompanied by a spiritual walk with you that is worthy of the calling that they have received in Christ. Recognizing the days are evil, therefore redeeming the time, and we're asking that you do this for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bible open, I encourage you to keep it open as we consider some things from these verses. I want to first invite you to consider from the first verse this couple, this man and this woman. The man's name is not specified here, but it's specified in. Other places, Exodus 6, especially Numbers, Numbers 26, some other places. The man's name is Amram. Can you say that, Amram? (laughs) Amram literally means exalted nation. The mom's name we know from Scripture is Jochebed. Jochebed, and her name means the glory of Yahweh. So a man of the Levitical tribe of Levi named Amram meets a woman of the same Levitical tribe named Jacobed, and the two of them marry, and the result is a nation is exalted for his glory. You combine their names. It's easy to overlook what God is doing in bringing these two adults together in marriage. I would propose to you that's often overlooked today. What God wants to do when he brings two people together in holy marriage. Amram and Jochebed are going to be used by God to play a specific role to bring about a change for God's purposes, for God's people, and for his glory. Thus, God is at work, although if you read chapter 1 of Exodus and you read through chapter 2, he's seldom mentioned. God is at work. Not only do we see this couple, but look at verse 2, consider their children. Numbers 26, verse 59 says this: that Jacobed and Amram had three children. She was the mother of Aaron, who was the oldest, Miriam, the second oldest, the middle child, and the final child, Moses, the baby. She and Amram are raising them, and little do they know at the time that Aaron, the oldest son, will one day become a leader, a head of the priesthood. Aaron will become a great statesman, a great spokesman. He'll become Moses' right hand man. And little do Jacob and Amram know that Miriam one day will become a woman who leads others in praise and worship of the Lord. And little do they know that this birth of this boy, Moses, will one day become a great leader for the children of of God and for God's honor and glory too. Verse two describes Moses. It says he is a beautiful child. Moses, if you go down to verse 10, is named by Pharaoh's daughter, literally mean his name means one who is drawn out of, drawn out of this Nile River. He'll be the same one that God uses to draw his people out of Egypt. And again, God is, not mentioned in the actual text. Consider the couple, consider these children, consider also the crisis, the crisis around the birth of this this baby boy. Moses is born at a time at a moment in history when it's pretty bleak. Amram and Jochebed have to be sick with concern sick with worry during Jacob's pregnancy. As she carries that little infant inside her womb, she is faced with the reality that as soon as he is born, legally he is to be destroyed. Can you imagine mother carrying that precious life Inside the womb, Psalm 139 describes the womb as a sacred place. But the thought that as soon as this child is born, the child will be destroyed. Prior to her pregnancy, Pharaoh, this ruler of Egypt, over in chapter one, is described for us. This new ruler who one who you know Joseph and all of his Family, Jacob's sons, they're all moved down into Egypt. They'd settled there. God had orchestrated all of that. Many years, hundreds of years pass. And there's a new failure, new Pharaoh in town, one who ruling, one who doesn't know Joseph, north, anything about, probably has no appreciation for that history, and perceives that the children of Israel, these slaves, are growing and multiplying so rapidly that if there was a military threat, these slaves could align themselves with the enemy and could turn on Egypt. And so feeling threatened, his political tenure being in jeopardy and the welfare of the Egyptian nation at stake, if you'll look in chapter 1 starting at verse 7, this is what we read. The children of Israel were fruitful, increased abundantly, multiplied, and grew exceedingly mighty. And the land was filled with them. And there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his constituents, look, the people, the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply and it happened in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us and so go up out of the land and due to time i won't read what he does but he takes action politi- politically he takes action and again god is not mentioned there but he's still proving himself faithful to his people, to his promises. Do you, do you remember, go back to Genesis chapter 12, when God first established the Israelites, the Hebrew nation. Do you remember his promise to, to Abram at that time? He says, Abram, I want to bless you. And if you'll obey me and follow me, then I'll want to bless your family. And your family will be blessed to the degree that you will have more descendants than can be numbered You'll multiply, I will bless you, make of you a great nation, and through you I will bless all nations. That is a extremely important covenant that we see in Genesis 12. God continues to reiterate that covenant to Abram and to Isaac and to Jacob, and here they are settled in the land of Egypt. And God is fulfilling his covenant. God is fulfilling his promise to the patriarchs. And through an orchestrated series of events, you remember the story Jacob ascends to power or Joseph ascends to power, the family gets in. Here they are settled in years past. Genesis ends and over a period again of several hundred years. They were fruitful, they'd grown, they'd been mighty, they'd multiplied. And so to mitigate this threat, this new Pharaoh politically decides that he will reduce their population first. And he takes three steps. I'll first reduce the population of these Hebrew slaves by making their, their lives so hard, so bitter, so miserable, and they'll become so unhealthy that become sick and begin to die off. That didn't work. The Bible, in fact, the very opposite. The Bible says the more they oppressed them, the more they made their lives difficult, the more that they begin to multiply. So that doesn't work. So then his second measure was to call in the midwives who, who assisted the Hebrew women in giving birth. And he says to the midwives, when you're assisting these Hebrew women, these Hebrew slaves with the birth of their sons and their daughters, if there is, are any boys, I want you to kill them. And then it's the first time God is mentioned in this text as they go into bondage until they eventually come out of bondage, a period of four hundred years passes, and there's only one mention of God during that four hundred year period, and that's when these Hebrew midwives. You remember they feared God; they fear the Lord, and they wouldn't obey the king's order. And he calls them in, and they and they said, "Well, these they they kind of it, it's civil disobedience what they do, and they they say, Well, these.'" These Hebrew wives are stronger than these Egyptian women and they just go out on themselves. I'm kind of paraphrasing this. They just go out and find a tree somewhere and they just give birth and we midwives don't even have any part in it. Again, God's at work. And so when that doesn't work, then the final decree is in the last verse of chapter one. So Pharaoh commanded all of the people... Throughout Israel, throughout the nation, Goshen, everywhere. Every son who is born shall be cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. That's the third measure. Let's get rid of them, make their lives so hard they become sick and oppressed, and they begin to, through their sickness, die off. That doesn't work. Let's have the Hebrew midwives kill them. That doesn't work, and so this political order is every baby boy that is born throughout Egypt is to be drowned in the Nile River. Those are the circumstances in which Jochebed carries this baby boy in her womb. And you could easily imagine the people are left to wonder. Think about Men and women, during that time, the same awareness as Amram and Jacobed, that as soon as this child is born, he's going to be drowned, little boys, and wonder, where is God in all of this? Has God forgotten us? Has God abandoned us? Does God even care about us? further, Or is God even real to be allowing this to happen? The couple, the children, the crisis in which Moses comes into the world, and then consider with me in verse three and four, the course of Jacobed. Probably Jacob and Amran for sure, but we don't know, but certainly Jacobed is mentioned here. It seems that Jacobed, this mother was developing some type of course of action, some type of strategy certainly time to pray and to think and prepare. And Jochebed is only mentioned two times in the Bible, but she has a lasting permanent place in Jewish biblical history as a mother to be honored, honored as a great woman of faith. And once Moses is born, Jochebed operates in faith and she devised this faith-based plan, if you will, a plan to somehow to protect, to preserve her son, and even at great risk to herself. What's the Bible say? It describes it. She hides him for three months, probably trying to keep him quiet, perhaps before that even hiding her pregnancy, wearing certain kinds of clothes where you can't detect it, doesn't want anyone to know, keeps him quiet during the birthing process, keeps him quiet after he's born. And once he begins, this little infant begins to grow larger and a little stronger probably, becomes a little louder, and she gets the idea, we're gonna be found out. Someone is gonna know. And so as a last-ditch effort in faith, she puts together a, a basket an ark, fashions it, prepares it, daubs it with asphalt, makes it watertight, and leaves it on the bank of the Nile River, strategically placed where perhaps Pharaoh's daughter, this princess and her maidens might find it, convinced that perhaps if these girls, these women found this little infant that somehow Moses might be saved. And so here she is by faith, places him in this ark, in this basket, on the riverbank, praying that the basket wouldn't turn over, nor alligators find it, smell it, and places the sister Miriam strategically in a position to watch the basket and see what happened, and you can be sure that she prays. Consider with me the creator, God. And I want to propose to you that Amram and Jacobed, clearly Jacobed, through faith, trusting in God's sovereignty and his goodness, see God intervene and protect this child to provide and to bless and to be glorified. Look at verses five through ten again. Let's read it once more. And the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe, and the maidens walked along the riverside, and when she saw the ark among the reeks, she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child. Behold, the baby wept. She had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. And the sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and nurse and call a nurse for you? This was Miriam, the baby's sister. Shall I get a nurse for you? Guess who the nurse was? I'll go get my mom. To nurse the child, the Pharaoh's daughter said, verse eight, go, the maiden went and called Jacobed, Moses' mother. And the baby was committed back to Jacobed's care, verse nine. Nurse the child, take care of him, and I'll even pay you a wage. And so the women, Jacobed took The infant Moses nursed him, the child grew, and at some point, the child was surrendered over to Pharaoh's daughter. I've already mentioned this, but as you read the story, one of the things that really struck me was for almost 320 years, up to this point, God seems to be silent, God seems to be absent. Very little mention other than him mentioned around how these midwives feared him. But just at the right time, God intervenes and delivers this baby's life and works in such a way where Jochebed gets a nice nice wage for doing something she longed to do, and that was to raise Moses, to keep him alive. And so what does that story have to do with us? I've heard stories of moms and dads who are afraid, who are fearful to have children today. I've heard comments like, we've decided not to have kids. This world is so evil, so sinful that we just hate to bring a child into the world. I've talked to other women who found out they were pregnant either out of wedlock or premature or women were going through some real serious times in their marriage and just all kinds of things where they said, God, why now? Why am I having this child now? Why am I now pregnant? There may be some of you here today discovered that you were expecting with a child and were going through some times in your life where you thought, why now? This, this is certainly not... The good best time for this. And I've heard that and had those conversations. And I've also heard some of those same conversations change a little time after those children came into the world. I would say to you, regardless of your own circumstances, God is God, our God is always faithful. That is his name. That is his nature. And I want to challenge every mom, every dad, every parent, I want to challenge you to to, to denounce all fear and all anxiety about raising your kids. God does not want us as parents and grandparents to be raising our kids with a spirit of fear. Never. Never instead i would encourage you to cover them cover them on a daily basis with prayer and supplication and intercession and thanksgiving and to parent your kids to grandparents to parent them with confidence and trust in god's nature his faithfulness and god's goodness let me share some verses with you if you want to write these down I encourage you to write them down and even come into the mirror. Proverbs 22, six. as I've mentioned already, is a great principle. Train up a child. Train up a little boy, a little girl in the ways that they should go. And when they're old, unlikely to depart from it. So God, that's what I'm going to do as a mom and a dad. I'm going to memorize this principle and I'm going to dedicate myself to raising this son, this daughter for your glory. And I'm going to cover them with prayer every day. Cover them with and cover myself with prayer in the process. Mom and dad, do not underestimate the power of prayer. Our God calls us to pray, and I don't understand all of the intricacies surrounding the mystery of prayer, but you can go from Genesis through Revelation, and you can see God move in extraordinary ways when his people pray. Pray for your kids. Pray for them when they're first come into the world. Cover them in prayer and allow the word of God to guide you to pray with confidence and boldness according to the scriptures as you pray for them. Listen, our kids are grown. 37, 35, and 31. Two, two of them are 31. Cover those kids every day in prayer. And they know it. The reason I pray for them is because I believe that God will protect them and bless them. It doesn't promise to keep them from hardship and trial, but in all of it, just praying over them, interceding for them on a daily basis. Psalm 102, verse 28 says, Lord, the children of your servants will continue and their descendants will be established before you. Pray that prayer. Pray that verse over your kids and your grandkids. God, my descendants are going to be established in you. 2 Timothy 1, 7, For our God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Or some of your Bibles may say discipline. So I'm not going to yield to fear in raising our kids. Hebrews twelve two. O Oh God, you are the author and the finisher of our faith. And so you're the author and the finisher of the faith of our, of our family and our kids. Claim Philippians in prayer Philippians 1 6. God is faithful. God is faithful to complete every good work that he starts in us that could be applied as you pray for your kids. Philippians 4, 6, and 7, I'm not going to be anxious about anything regarding these children, but I'm going to pray about everything in their lives. God, I'm gonna rest in you as I do for a peace that surpasses all understanding that your hand is upon them. As they come into the world, as they go off to school, as they set out for college, or as they leave home for the first time, God, I'm going to trust that you're going to be faithful to complete the good work that you start in their lives. Hebrews 11, faith is being sure of what you hope for and certain of things that you cannot see. And I want to encourage some of you parents and And some of you understand this, that some of the real parenting work starts when they leave home. You can't appreciate that when they're little, but you'll understand that when they get older. That's when the prayers are needed more than ever. God, I can't see them. They're out of sight. They're out of mind. But God, you're faithful. You see them, and so I'm going to trust you and cover them in prayer. God doesn't want us to be fearful in raising our kids. He wants us to trust and rest in his goodness and his faithfulness, cover them in prayer, teach them the Bible. You guys know that text in Deuteronomy 6. Now read it, but let me summarize it. Mom, dad, grandparents, grandparents, grandparents. This applies to you as well. There is only one true and living God. These graduates and others, especially as they go off to school, they're going to hear other theories. There's many gods. You're ridiculous. You're uneducated. You must be illogical to think that there's only one true God. You must be illogical and close-minded and narrow-minded and kind of ignorant to think that the gospel is exclusive. They're going to hear those things. But there is only one true and living God and he's revealed himself one way, and that's through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm not aware of any other place in the Bible that sins can be forgiven and atoned for except through faith in Christ. I'm not not aware of any other way that God has orchestrated, that God has planned, put together for kids and people to be saved than through faith in Christ. And I know that's becoming less and less of a popular view today, but it's the truth. According to Scripture, There's one true living God, and he calls us to love him with all of our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength. And he's called us to hide his word in our heart. Psalm 119, our kids learn it in vacation Bible school right when they do the pledge to the Bible. Your word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. God, your word, I'll hide in my heart. Why? That I might not sin against you. Teach them the word. He says, talk about the word of God in your home. Talk about the Lord when you're running errands. Talking about the Lord each night before you lay down. Talk about the Lord in your home each day. When you rise, keep them at the forefront of your mind, those truths, those doctrines. Ephesians 6, fathers, it says fathers, I think... Certainly applies to fathers and mothers. Do not exasperate your kids, but bring them up, start early, stay consistent, train them in the scriptures. Don't rely upon someone else to train your kids. That's, that's your calling. That's a high calling from God. To you personally, he's entrusted that little bundle to you, that precious little boy, that precious girl, that precious life. Don't rely upon someone else to do that for you. And I would also add to take away the joy and the pleasure and the blessing of that. And Ned Hickey's going to love me for this. I just, I just, I've never been a part of a church that had Bible drill. Man, that's a good thing. And we just encourage every parent, take advantage of it. It's not likely any of your kids are going to be pro ball players. (laughs) It's not likely that, I mean, even if they're really, really good, it's not likely they're ever going to make money doing it. And I want to tell you as a parent, as a grandparent, There'll be something that brings you much greater pleasure one day knowing that God's word is hidden in the heart of that child than how well they can kick or throw a ball. I love you. I, I love you. I'm telling you the truth of sincerity in heart. You will regret it. You will regret someday that you didn't Take on that high calling, that sacred calling of investing in the lives of your kids spiritually. You will, listen to me, you will be full of regret. Teach them the word. And I would say to you, I think this, I can make this point from the text contextually. Jacob had a plan. She put together a spiritual Physical, faith-based plan, how to protect and preserve and care for the life of this baby, and the application would be mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, have you ever stopped to think about devising a spiritual parenting plan, grandparent plan for your kids? our grandson was down here a couple months ago and we made plans. We went up to Walmart and let him, he picked out a little red Zebco fishing pole. And I went up to a little little bait place here on Bankhead, you know, we walked in there and opened that cooler door and I said, hey Will, get, get one of those boxes of worms he pops I said yeah they're worms and so he got those worms and man we went out behind brunetti's and just me and him sat there on that bank and I cast that thing out there, and he's I videoed it if you want to see it see me after service <laughs> and I he said and I said just just reel it real slow just just reel it in he did it got it in we threw it back out there and and he got that old bobber disappeared, you know. He didn't know it. he didn't know it was gone. He just reeled, you know. And I said, "Will you, you got something?" I said, "Stand up." So he stood up, and held that pole, and he started reeling. Of course, that line started going around like that and pulled that fish. Oh my goodness! We caught, we gave him names. He caught three or four fish, brought him home. He, well, we won it. I'm, I'm totally off. Would you just indulge me and let me have a little fun for a minute? You know, he, we got home. He. We brought him in the bucket. He wanted to show Mimi the fish, and we got home there. And I said, "Well, let, we, let's let's go take them back." You know, no, no, He wait. He, he want to cut the heads off and eat them. <laughs> I said, "No, nah, I, I didn't want to clean them fish, you know." So I said, "You know, so I don't exactly we, we talked about. You know, let's it was got dark. You know, I said let's get a flashlight and let's walk back down to the river or back to the little pond area back there, and I said, let's go. And so we, me and Will, he held the flashlight, and we walked down with that little bucket of fish, and, and we prayed over them, you know, that they'd find their mom and their dad and make it back home. And, you know, you're, you're looking for every opportunity, right, to instill prayer and faith in them, you know. And So I mean, just pray over them when they let their fish go. they find their mom and their dad and their, you know, the hole, wherever their bed, wherever they were going back to, so. But my, my point in telling you that we we made plans, we... Many made plans. We did things with him, but you know, and we, we do that, but what about a spiritual plan? Something that's intentional to instill faith, to teach scriptures, to, that they would come to, to, to know that God is real and a spiritual plan. Would you, well, I'm gonna ask you if, to do something today. When you leave here today, every parent, every mom, dad, every grandparent, I want to give you some homework. When you leave here today, would sometime would you get a piece of paper, pen or pencil, and would you just sit down and would you just kind of pray and spend a couple minutes to the Lord and say, and just write out some things, some steps, a spiritual plan for raising your kids. And it needs to be, needs to be more than... Take them to church on Sunday. Would you do that? I'm I'm not gonna, I wanna encourage you to do. A spiritual, grandparent, a spiritual plan, some intentional steps, things that you believe you could do to help instill the Word of God in their lives. Listen, don't leave it to chance. Don't let someone else prescribe a plan for you. You are unique, you are different. There's not another mother, another dad like you. You have your own personality, strengths, and gifts. Every child is a little different in the way they're wired. Customize a spiritual plan according to Scripture that's intentional in raising your kids. And follow it. Follow it. it. Put it into operation. And remember this. Your church family is to be a support role, not to have the primary role. And then let me ask you one other thing. We're going we're gonna to close. Some other homework. I'd like to ask all the Sunday school teachers today that next Sunday you take a couple minutes out of your class. You, you, you could even do this in an older teenage class, but through adults. Get teenagers thinking about what, how they would do it if they were parents spiritually, how they would teach their kids. That'd, that'd be an interesting thing for the older high school kids. But in your Sunday school class, create a little time at the beginning of the class and, let, and see what couples, moms and dads, see what they've come up with. Let them share their plans with you for a few moments in the Sunday school class and send reminders out to them this week that you're going to do it so they don't forget Let me close with this invitation. Here's the invitation this morning. Here's how we're gonna close. Mom and dad, I'd like to invite you to recommit yourself to rededicate your lives to the Lord that you're gonna parent your kids by faith. I don't care if they're one month old, one year old, 10, 20, 30 years old that you will rededicate yourself to parenting your kids by faith. That's the invitation. Parenting them by faith, guided by the word of God and the leadership of the Holy Spirit, covering them with prayer and trusting in the goodness and the faithfulness of our God. Let's pray together.